Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. But first, we start with the BC vaccine card system and the growing human rights concerns about the BC vaccine passport. Now, have a listen to this. When Dr. Bonnie Henry earlier this week announced this vaccine card, uh, she was asked if there will be any exemptions for people who are unable to take the vaccine if they have a rare medical condition. And here is what she said. The short answer is no. Um, This is a temporary measure that's getting us through a risky period where we know that people who are unvaccinated are at greater risk of both contracting and spreading this virus. So if there are um, those rare people who have a medical reason why they can't be immunized, these are discretionary events that we're talking about. So they will not be able to attend those events through this period of time of high risk. Okay, so if you have a medical condition that prevents you from taking the vaccine, you are out of luck under this passport system. No exemptions. Let's discuss now with my guest, Kasari Govender, uh, British Columbia's independent human rights commissioner. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Commissioner, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Okay. Do you have any concerns about this vaccine card and especially the lack of exemption for people who can't take the vaccine? Uh, Yes. I mean, overall, I think that a proof of vaccine requirement is both allowed under human rights law um, and also, you know, a policy like this is uh, can be justified with human rights principles because it could protect the most vulnerable among us, those who are unable to take a vaccine or those who don't have uh, the same level of protection from a vaccine. Uh, That said, a policy like this needs to give um, deep consideration to human rights principles and law. And uh, I do have concerns on that front, a few concerns on that front. I'm not surprised that you have those concerns. I mean, if you take a look at the BC Human Rights Code, I mean, it's right there. You can't discriminate against someone uh, based on a disability, right? I mean, and you could argue if someone has a rare medical condition that prevents them from taking this vaccine, would that qualify for qualify them for protection under the code? I think a lack of an exemption or accommodation could uh, constitute a violation of the Human Rights Code. And um, I'm certainly monitoring that closely. There are some, you know, we'll wait to see what's in this order and to see if there are any justifications for it. So if if the PHO has a reason to believe that that uh, that's very small group of people who would be unable to take the vaccine, if they pose a public health risk, there may be in, that, that may be justified. But it, it, it seems it's hard to see that at this point. Um, and I, I think it really there. This really does raise some concerns under the Human Rights Code, as you pointed out. Yeah. Did Dr. Bonnie Henry consult with you on this uh, before she brought this in? I've been having good conversations uh, with the PHO all the way along, and, and my office has been providing some human rights advice. We did raise with them. Uh, we, we published in July uh, some guidance on putting into place proof of vaccine policies 
mostly aimed at employers, um, but other service providers and housing providers as well. And we did uh, bring that to their attention. But no, the short answer is I was not consulted on, on before these announcements were made this week. Okay, that's interesting. Do you think you should have been consulted? Like, do you think the, you know, the public health officer should have gone to the province's human rights commissioner and said, look, this is a public health emergency. We're bringing in this system with, with no exemption for people who can't take the vaccine, and I think it would have been reasonable for her to consult with you on it, no? Well, those conversations, uh, let me just say those conversations are ongoing, and certainly the orders have not been issued yet. Uh, so I, I do hold out uh, some hope that we will see some uh, allowance made uh, for, for these for right. folks who are unable to take it. And again, I think it's, I think it's really difficult to justify, certainly from, from what I know, uh, but that's up to the public health officer to determine is there a, is there a sufficient public health reason to, to not create an exemption. At this point, that hasn't been made clear. Speaking to Kasari Govender, British Columbia's Human Rights Commissioner. Commissioner, there's also been an argument that the vaccine passport, as it's been laid out in British Columbia, would also contravene perhaps uh, religious freedoms in the province. If someone says they've uh, their faith or their religion prevents them from taking a vaccine, uh, do you believe there's any, uh, a human, any human rights problems there as well? People, of course, protected under the Human Rights Code for their religious beliefs. Your thoughts? It's a similar analysis as to people with disabilities. So under the the legal framework, if someone experiences a a negative impact, like like being excluded uh, from a service, from a business, even if it's a discretionary service, uh, like uh, going to a restaurant, if someone's excluded on the basis of a protected ground under the Human Rights Code, so that's aspects of our identity like disability, religion, race, gender, and so on. And if you're excluded on that basis, then you've shown, at least on the on the surface, that you've been discriminated against. Then the burden shifts to the, the person doing the discriminating or the body doing the discriminating. Can they justify that on a variety of different um, means? One of those would be, have they tried to accommodate you? Have they offered you other alternatives that could probably get you the same benefit. Um, and so, and have they done that to the point of what's called undue hardship? Have they done that to the point of, of they've done all reasonable efforts? Now that's a, that's a pretty uh, contextual answer. That's always fact dependent. So that's why it, it's hard to say definitively that a particular circumstance would violate the code, but certainly right. this raises concerns for people who have religious reasons um, not to take the vaccine and also for those who have disabilities who've been told by their doctors not to take the vaccine. I, I do want to add one piece here, which is, sure. again, if, if there's a public health reason for this, uh, we do know that that some folks don't have the same level of protection. Not everyone's, we're not all being tested to say, you know, what what is your antibody count or what is your level of immunity as a result of this vaccine? So we know that people have different levels of, of protection based on different medical conditions and their medical histories. And those people are not being excluded here. So it's, it's difficult then to believe that a small group of people who are not vaccinated would pose a public health risk. Again, that's not my, not my place to determine, but the analysis that is important for the human rights analysis. Let me let me play a short clip here for you from yesterday's show. And this is Laura Track, who is a human rights lawyer in British Columbia. She's with the BC Human Rights Clinic. Uh, predict she predicted on the show yesterday that she believes there will be a, a legal challenge to this uh, based on human rights grounds. Uh, here she is outlining some of her concerns, and then I'll get your thoughts on the other side of this. Laura Track here. 
We know that there are people who legitimately cannot receive the vaccine due to medical conditions and disabilities, things like allergies or being uh, immunocompromised in some way. These are not folks opposed to the vaccine for personal or political reasons. These are people who legitimately cannot safely receive the vaccine. And under human rights law, policymakers and service providers are required to take steps to what's called accommodate people who have disabilities. Okay, do you agree with her analysis there that there would be a, a requirement to accommodate? And it, it appears that clearly the authorities are not have, have not accommodated people in this uh, category. I, I do agree with with yeah. Laura's analysis, and that's. That's what we have to see in this order. I mean, it, you know, we've heard the announcement of what's been intended. We don't yet have the order. And as I say, those conversations are ongoing. Uh, it, it's sort of between my office and the, the public health office. Um, I, there are there are a couple of other equity concerns here as well. We know that some groups of people are not accessing the vaccine at the same rate. So we don't have data on every uh, sort of identity group in the province, but we do know that uh, First Nations uh, vaccination rates lag behind um, the non-First Nations population in the province. And there are really good historical reasons for that discrimination in the, in the healthcare system, the legacy of residential schools and the, the medical testing that happened in the environment. So we, you know, it needs, this needs to also be accompanied by culturally appropriate and extensive efforts. Uh, every effort needs to be raised to ensure that this doesn't have a disproportionate impact on certain populations. Okay, we're continuing to watch this very closely, to say the least. I- I'm grateful to you for coming on the show today with your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. So the mandatory vaccination debate is red hot in British Columbia and across the country right now. In B.C., of course, we've got the looming B.C. vaccine passport system, the vaccine card, proof of vaccination to be required to enter a restaurant, pub, movie theater, a familiar list now, and we continue to talk about that. Meanwhile, we've got mandatory vaccination looming for long-term care workers in the province. You might recall how that was announced earlier by Dr. Bonnie Henry. Here she is making that announcement, mandatory vaccination for staff in long-term care. Have a listen. We are announcing mandatory vaccination as a condition of employment for all workers in seniors in long-term care and seniors assisted living. This will apply to all licensed facilities, whether they are private, health authority owned and operated, or contracted facilities. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry there, mandatory vaccination if you work in long-term care. It's interesting to see that this sector is so far the only one that uh, has been singled out for mandatory vax. What about other healthcare workers? That's being reviewed. What if you work in a hospital? Uh, already lots of talk about whether teachers should face mandatory vaccination. Uh, university and college professors. So far, it's just long-term care. What is the impact on that? On long-term care facilities with mandatory vaccination for their staff looming here. Let's check in with Terry Lake on that, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Terry, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Good morning. Good morning to you. When does the mandatory vaccination rule take effect here for long-term care staff? Well, starting uh, in September, we will be collecting uh, personal health numbers and and, uh, populating a a portal 
that allows us to see the vaccine status of every employee. And then beginning on October uh, 13th, uh, the um, employees will have to be fully vaccinated. Uh, and uh, that's the way we'll be able to track it is with this new portal. So until that time, if you're not vaccinated, uh, you must wear a mask in long-term care. Uh, if you are fully vaccinated and can show proof of that, uh, then uh, the mask is not required unless, of course, you're doing a procedure that would create droplets. And so our, our concern, Mike, as you've alluded to, is without uh, a similar policy in acute care, uh, we may lose a significant number of our employees uh, to the acute care system. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. Now, I know you've been doing some research on this, right? You've been doing a survey uh, of your people. What, what have you found out on this? Well, we did a SNAP survey this week because we were hearing of that concern from uh, from some of our members. So we reached out and we got responses from 50 employers, uh, mostly in long-term care, but some assisted living, some independent living, and some home health providers. And uh, it showed that about uh, 450 employees uh, may leave employment because of the mandatory vaccine uh, uh, program. And uh, the vast majority of those would look to go to the acute care system because we're talking about healthcare aides, LPNs, RNs. Uh, and of course, there's so many openings for them in the acute care system that they can just basically walk across the street and get a job where they don't have to be vaccinated. So we really need to create a level playing field. And of course, you know, why wouldn't you want people working in acute care to be vaccinated? You're dealing with a very vulnerable population in hospitals and in uh, home care. Uh, so it, it really just makes sense. Now, we know that the ministry is, and the Dr. Henry, uh, you know, they're, they're putting some thought into this, but um, unless we get it done quickly, we, we do risk losing people to acute care. Well, I find that fascinating. So if you, as you're already struggling to keep the staff that you have, if you suddenly have hundreds of workers who say, I don't want to get vaccinated, I'm going to go down the street and work in a in the hospital instead where I don't have this mandatory vaccination rule. If that happens, if you lose, like, how many hundreds of, of employees did you mention there? Well, it's an estimate, of course. So we asked people to tell us how many they thought they would lose. And, and we had about 450 employees from these 50 employers. So, you know, that represents about 20% of our members. So, you wow. know, theoretically, we could see, you know, up to a thousand people uh, that would leave the sector. And that would be devastating because, as you mentioned, we're already facing a health human resource uh, crisis in seniors care. So that's why it's important, I think, to create a level playing field. Now, you know, thankfully, with the vaccine passport, I think people are uh, understanding that this is the way the world is going uh, and many other workplaces are are uh, requiring vaccines. So we need to work with our, our workforce um, and to provide the education and, and help them understand that quitting their job is, is not necessarily the answer to the issue because everywhere they turn, they're going to need a vaccine in order to participate fully in, uh, in life in British Columbia. Are you therefore calling on the government to mandate mandatory vaccination for staff in the entire healthcare sector, like not just long-term care, but also hospitals that staff there should be required to get the vaccine too? Absolutely. That, that, yeah. it, that is exactly what we've been asking of the ministry. And we know they are considering this. 
uh, and we know that it's not simple to implement. So, um, you know, we have a lot of sympathy for the amount of work it takes. But the longer uh, it's left, the more at risk we are of losing uh, losing folks. Now, we are working uh, with our um, uh, sister organization, Safe Care BC, which is the health and safety organization for contracted care providers. And they are going to do an education program uh, to help employees understand the, the risk of COVID, uh, you know, the safety and efficacy of the vaccine, and uh, try to do as much as possible to help people overcome any hesitancy they might have. And this is what we need to do. We, we need to understand why people are reluctant to get the vaccine, provide them with the information so that they can make, uh, you know, a choice right. that will protect them and keep them in the workforce. This is something that you had been calling for, your association had been asking for mandatory vaccination uh, of staff. And I recall when the government announced it, uh, you were a guest here on the show, and I, I recall you were quite pleased that the government was going in this direction. Are you regretting that now? or No, not at all. Uh, you know, it is the right thing to do, and all of our members are totally supportive of a mandatory vaccination policy. But I mentioned, I think the following week when I was on with Simi, that this was a concern that if acute wasn't covered as well, that that we might have this problem. Well, this survey has verified that that is in fact uh, you know a real concern for our members and operators. Wow. So, um, the sooner we can get this uh, across the, the healthcare field, uh, the better it will be for uh, for everybody. I think. I mean, I've I've literally talked to people that tell me about anesthesiologists in acute care that have not been vaccinated. So. You know, that's that's a real head shaker. And I think we absolutely need to address those issues. Why? I mean, if you have people who are hardcore anti-vax, they're not going to take the vaccine. What makes you think that they like is your hope that if you if you bring in a mandatory vaccination across the entire healthcare sector and then they've got nowhere else to work in the in the sector, if, if, if everybody's mandatory, that will convince them to get the vaccine? Is that what you're hoping? Or is there a risk that a lot of people just might quit, period, just get out of the whole business? Well, you know, I think if people have concerns and they're thinking about leaving their job, we need to help them overcome those concerns with an education program. But if they do have options, then, you know, they may not be as willing to receive the information uh, that will convince them to take the vaccine. The the members that responded to the survey said that the biggest reasons people uh, have not been vaccinated are concerns about uh, potential adverse effects of the vaccine. They're kind of waiting to see uh, when it's been out there longer, if there are any sort of long-term effects. Um, There's only a very small portion of people, Mike, that absolutely don't believe in vaccines. So we need to really overcome those concerns and convince them to do the right thing. Because as I said, wherever they turn soon, they're going to need to get that vaccine. So let's help them have a a better time making that decision. Does it surprise you? I mean, you're a former health minister yourself. I mean, does it surprise you that healthcare professionals, nurses, licensed practical nurses, care aides, I mean, in, in some cases, even doctors, you mentioned you heard about anesthesiologists. Does it surprise you that a healthcare, a highly educated healthcare professionals would not, would be, would, don't want to take the vaccine? Does that surprise you? Yes, it does. Um, but I think this is the result of so much information and misinformation that we see online. And, you know, there's 
people that have become self-proclaimed experts, uh, and they may be experts in one area of medicine, but not in virology or epidemiology. Um, but people go down their rabbit holes, Mike, and, and they, they have a bubble that they don't get out of. And uh, it is shocking to me that we have medical professionals that are putting people at risk. I mean, you know, we see our hospitals filling up. We, we see people passing away or in intensive care uh, that haven't been vaccinated, and now they're regretting it. We've seen those, those videos from the United States particularly, but we're actually hearing those stories here in B.C. now, too. Do you need urgent action on this? I mean, you described a scenario where hundreds of workers could potentially leave the long-term care system because of the mandatory vaccination just in that one sector. And this is coming this is coming down the pike quickly here, right? I mean, this kicks in on September. Is it September 13th? Is that when it takes effect? October 13th is the first oh. day when you will need to be double vaccinated. But of course, you know, in order to do that, you've got to have your first vaccine by September 14th or so. Right. So it, it's coming pretty quickly. And what what we'd like the government to do is is to say, look, it is coming to acute and community care. And, um, you know, even if it isn't implemented at the very same time, at least send that signal so people don't think they have the option. All right. Welcome back to the show as we continue talking about mandatory vaccination in healthcare. So far, it's just long-term care. And you heard my conversation there with Terry Lake from the Long-Term Care Association uh, saying they're, they're worried about this. They potentially could lose hundreds of their workers if they're required to get the vaccination. And they can walk across the street and work in a hospital where they don't have to get vaxxed. Uh, instead, he's calling for uh, mandatory vaccination across the whole sector. Terry Lake, did, uh, have you told the government this? This is what you want? Yes, we have. And, uh, you know, we, we meet regularly with the ministry and uh, representative from the public health officer's uh, office. So uh, they're aware. And as I said, I think they are contemplating this. So certainly the signals are there, uh, but I don't think they've really gone out publicly and said that, which is what we need. Richard and White Rock on the open line. Hi. Richard. Talk to me. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was listening to your guest there talk about uh, the risk that uh, that his, uh, his sector, his industry, that, that his long-term care workers will all leave uh, and go across to the hospitals. And um, and I heard him talk about uh, these guys making a decision to quit their job. Um, I think it's important that uh, all, all these workers that are considering quitting their job to go across and work at the hospitals um, realize that uh, you should not be quitting your job. Um, you can't parachute a mandatory vaccine requirement into your contract, and you need to force these fellows to fire you. And once you're fired, um, you do have a wrongful dismissal claim. And I think one of the misconceptions here is that it is the way that it's going, mandatory vaccines for everybody. And I think it's really a, a disservice to the whole industry saying that, oh, we need to level the playing field by removing people's options to work somewhere where they don't require a vaccine. Okay, Richard, th- thank you for the call. Let me get Terry's response. Uh, I, I, are you worried about wrongful dismissal suits, Terry Lake? Well, we've we certainly expressed concern, you know, with these types of grievances. Uh, we're hoping the, the provincial government will manage that at a provincial level through the Health Employers Association of BC. I mean, well, we're, we're all going through this for the first time, Mike, so there will yeah. be some bumps along the road. But, you know, to, to, to say that we're taking away people's choice, I mean, this is healthcare. 
You're looking after yeah. vulnerable people, and we're dealing with a, a virus that kills vulnerable people. So, I mean, it yeah. really is a no-brainer, in in my view, uh, to make sure that you're not posing a risk to the people for whom you are caring. Like most of the experts I've consulted on this say if this is a government-imposed uh, health care order and a mandate, that there would be no jeopardy of wrongful dismissal. But, you know, that could be tested in court. Let's go to Corey and Burnaby. Hi, Corey. Hey, guys. Yeah, uh, quick thing. Um I'm against the uh, vaccinating uh, people who are forcing them to be vaccinated. Uh, it's more of a human rights thing. What I do know is that the nurses' union won the case years ago with the flu, where they're trying to force people to do flu uh, vaccine. Um, yeah. And so they, what they did was they said, okay, fine, we, we're not going to force you to get it, but you have to wear PPE between November and March during the flu season, right? So why can't we just do that? I mean, like, instead of trampling on people's rights, instead of doing all this, I understand, get vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. I get it. But... Say, hey, look, if this is what you're going to do, then fine. If you're not going to do it, you have to wear PPE basically forever, right? So Terry Lake. And people can make that choice. Terry. Well, there was a, a, a vaccinate or mask policy for flu uh, that the BC nurses union certainly were opposed to. Uh, they didn't win any case. Uh, what happened was the government negotiated with them in January 2019, and, and basically the policy is still in place but not enforced. Uh, but the reality is that, you know, masks are just one part of a defense. We know that the, the vaccine is the, the greatest tool we have to prevent the transmission right. of this virus. And so uh, these are highly vulnerable people. And, um, you know, you, you, you would hope if you put your loved one in care that the people caring for them aren't going to pose a risk to them. Mary and Burnaby. Mary, you got 30 seconds here. Okay, go ahead. I think that uh, basically when you're having an exhaustive system and there's people that are going to be against the vaccine, you're going to have more of an exhaustive system. So are you willing to lose? I don't think the government's willing to play that game. So honestly, I think they're going to come up with something to say, hey, you know what? Wear a mask. Do this. There has to be something in place. You can't even out the playing field just like that. Mary, thank you for the call. Terry Lake, an important issue. We continue to follow it closely. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Ray. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Pardon me, Mike. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the coyote attacks in Stanley Park now. There have been 40 coyote attacks on people in the park since December. Some think the number could actually be even higher than that if you consider unreported attacks in the park. The latest victim here... The Vancouver Triathlon event. Organizers of the triathlon have now canceled their run portion of the triathlon scheduled for Stanley Park because of the risk of coyote attacks on the runners. On yesterday's show, I interviewed a young woman who was severely attacked and injured by a coyote while she was jogging in the park. That was a very moving interview yesterday, if you heard it. She suffered terrible injuries to her leg, including three severed tendons, and she continues to recover from her injuries, both physical and emotional, after going through that very devastating attack. What should be done about this? There's lots of opinions on it. 
I've got a poll up on Twitter right now asking what people think should be done about this. Let's check out what people are saying here on it. Okay, 50% in the poll right now believe the coyotes should be humanely euthanized. 33% say they should be trapped and removed. Uh, the rest, which is the minority here, say leave them alone. Let's discuss now with my guest, Donnie Rosa. Donnie is the general manager of the Vancouver Parks Board of Parks and Recreation. Donnie, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. Okay, how big of a problem is this in your mind right now? It's a big problem. You know, public safety is, um, you know, my top priority, the park board's top priority, and uh, I'm we're really concerned. Uh, this is a huge, huge issue. Yeah, do you think it could be that the number of attacks could be even higher than what's been reported? I mean, the number that keeps being reported is 40 attacks since December. Is that an accurate number? I think it could actually be higher than that because maybe there are some attacks that are not reported. Yeah, regardless, it's too many anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. We need, to, we, need to, we need to stop this. I agree. What's being done about it? Well, you know, as you know, a number of things have been done. Um, we kind of are escalating our behaviors or our, our reaction to this. Um, originally, we were doing some education. We were getting in there and uh, making sure that, you know, we were evaluating. Do we need to change out garbage cans, which we're doing? Do we need to uh, enhance the cleaning, which we're doing? But what it comes right down to, like, we have people going in there with raw chickens, cat food, and large bags of bird seed. And they're trying to draw out uh, raccoons and other animals and, and even the coyotes so that they can take photographs and put it on social media and they can have this great fodder on social media. These are the folks that we want to uh, stop. They, we want them to stop this behavior. They're the ones putting all these coyotes at risk as well as making it unsafe uh, in the park for people to be there. Okay, that is, I, I certainly agree with you. That's, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. What is being done about the, these people? Are, are they being fined? Like, can the, can the city actually fine these people? The province actually has the ability to ticket. So yeah. I'm asking people right now, like, call. You know, I'll give you the number, 1-877-952-7277. That's a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week hotline. The province will come out and ticket. As you know, it's tough to, to track that, you know, get them there at the right time. But people, you know, it's, it's a few people who are doing this. Now, I, we need to look at some of the other behaviors, of course, and some of the other things going on just in general. The park's been used a lot more, people picnicking and stuff. So our cleanup has been amped up. Um, but ultimately, you cannot go in there and feed the coyotes and the, and the you know, in the indirect access, feed the prey for coyotes like rodents um, and not expect that these coyotes are going to start to feel more comfortable around human yeah. beings. Speaking to Donnie Rosa, General Manager of the Vancouver Parks Board. Donnie, let me play a clip here for you from the interview I did yesterday with uh, a young woman who was uh, attacked and severely injured by a coyote while jogging in the park. And then get your thoughts. So here's this is from yesterday's show. Have a listen. I couldn't even walk a walk. And this took months with a hip brace around my, uh, around, uh, my waist all the way down to my knee not even being able to use the toilet. I mean, it was major. I'm still affected by it. I will be affected by it for the rest of my life. All three tendons were torn, and my sciatic oh. nerve was compressed because of that. I still have bite marks on my leg, visible. I still have bruises, which I had all the way down my leg. Um, I still have them. 
Okay, that was on yesterday's show, Donnie, and I really felt for her as she described her injuries there. And, uh, you know, she's facing a really, really tough recovery, both from the physical injuries and, and the emotional injuries that she, she suffered. I mean, what can you say to people who have experienced this in the park? I, this is horrible, obviously. I'm, I'm working directly with the Ministry of Forest, Lands, and Natural Resources, and we're looking at every option. Nothing's off the table right now. So um, we're looking at what we need to do to put this to, uh, you know, uh, put this to an end now. It's not okay. We did, you know, we, we started with the education. We started with the cleanup. We started, you know, we even had uh, five coyotes removed. Um, I asked the question, can we get in there and just remove all these coyotes? And, you know, the, the initial answer is definitely, you know, that could happen, but coyotes will come back. Coyotes are part of balancing the ecology um, in the park. But, um, like I said, nothing's off the table at this point, and I, I'm working with the ministry, uh, and, and we're going to have some decisions in the next little while. We're, we, we put together a task force to address this, but, you know, we've, we've got to take some action, and, and uh, uh, we're going to be taking further action soon. Okay, is humanely euthanizing the coyotes an option? I, don't, I know that upsets a lot of people, but there is a, a petition gaining steam online saying, enough is enough. I mean, we could see a child killed here by a coyote. I, I think that's a, a very clear possibility. And maybe the response should be, they take the coyotes out. You humanely euthanize the coyotes in the park. Is that an option in your mind? Yeah, well, let me, I'll, let me just be really clear. We're following the lead of the province, the Ministry of Forest Lands and Natural Resources. From what I understand, we're looking at every option with them. I'm no coyote expert, Park, Parks and Rec, we're not coyote experts, but we are responsible for the public safety. And so we are working directly with them. As you know, we're working with the you know, wildlife biologists, the Stanley Park Ecology Society. We're bringing the right minds to the table to make this decision. Um, but we're going to be making something quickly because you're right. I, we don't want any further attacks. I mean, at this point, I, I would say to people, you know, don't go to the park uh, after dusk and, and try to avoid it. Um, you know, don't go to the park at night. It's closed now, right? You know, yeah. at night anyway, because the, the fires, but it just don't go after dusk and, and give us some time to sort this out. Donnie, you mentioned that it's provincial jurisdiction here, the enforcement on people who are feeding wildlife in the park. Uh, and they're, if people see that they should, they should call the provincial enforcement officers to uh, en enforce the law. Do you think there's no municipal law, right? There, is there a municipal bylaw that can be enforced by the park board? Like, you can't have your people go down there and write tickets. Is that right? At, at this point, no, I don't have that ability. Yeah. But uh, it is on the table, and we're definitely looking at what we need to be doing for that. Really? Okay. So you're you're, you would, would you like to see that? Like, would you like to see municipal authority, you know, have your staff go down there and write tickets? What I would like to see is that we're able to address the issues here. So whatever tools we need to put in place to be able to address the issue of these folks coming in and bringing in raw chickens, cat food, and bags of birdseed, you know, we need to be able to address that. People can't be doing that. Yeah. What about the garbage can issue? And you touched briefly on this. Like a lot of people have wondered, why are do we not have wildlife-proof, animal-proof garbage cans in the park? That There's action being taken on that. Is that correct? Yeah, there there is, but I you know I should say we've had these garbage cans in the park in the park for years as well as the coyotes, and we haven't had this problem before. So if you look mm. at what's changed, 
What's changed is the aggressive feeding that's been happening, the overt feeding in order to get those photographs and really, quite frankly, to beef up their social media. It's a very selfish act. Yeah, okay, so you're saying that the garbage cans in the park are already wildlife-proof? Because I've had people suggest to me otherwise. I mean, I haven't, I haven't checked out the garbage cans lately, but are they're, they're animal-proof can- garbage cans now? Is that right? No, I, I wouldn't say they're wildlife-proof, and that's why we are going to trade them out for some that are wildlife-proof. What I'm saying oh. is these garbage cans that we've had in there for years have been in there with coyotes for years, and we haven't had the incidents with coyotes. Oh, I see, years. okay, yeah. 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 Yeah, so you're saying it's like a... This is a human-caused problem, in your opinion. Well, this is what I'm being told by the the, the folks who know this business better than I do. Um, and, and, you know, this is what the, the conservation officers are saying, that we need to address the human behavior. That said, right. we reach a critical point. We're, we're looking, like I said, everything's on the table right now. Donnie, thank you for coming on the show today. I'm grateful to you for it. appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. Uh, All right. Let's talk about one of the eternal debates in our country now, public versus private health care in Canada. This is an issue that's come up on the federal election campaign trail. It all started when the Liberals circulated a video of Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole saying he wanted to see more public-private synergies in health care, as he put it. The Liberals said that proves he wants private health care. He wants to bring in a two-tier system. Let's listen to a couple of clips here from the campaign trail, and then we've got a fantastic panel standing by here to discuss. Now, first of all, here's the conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, sort of pushing back on the liberals on this point. Have a listen to this. I 100% support our public and universal health care system. In fact, it's been the backbone we've relied on through the pandemic and the frontline workers in it. That's why... In our plan, in Canada's recovery plan, we're giving an additional $60 billion to secure that public health care system. Okay, Aaron O'Toole, the Conservative leader. The Liberals, though, saying uh, O'Toole's not being upfront here, that he's got another agenda. And have a listen to this now. Here's the Liberal leader, Justin Trudeau. Aaron O'Toole confirmed he wants to bring private, for-profit health care to Canada. He said he supports choice in health care, which means letting the wealthiest pay to jump ahead in line. Okay. We believe in strengthening universal public health care for everyone. Okay, let's discuss now with our panel. Dr. Brian Day is the owner of the Canby Surgery Centre, a uh, longtime advocate for private care options in Canada. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Dr. Day, thank you for coming on. You're welcome. Also on the line is Dr. Melanie Bechard. Dr. Bechard is a, a pediatric emergency doctor in Ottawa and chair of Canadian Doctors for Medicare. Dr. Bechard, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, thank you to both of you. Melanie Bechard, let me go to you first. What are your thoughts on this? Are you worried or concerned about where the, a conservative government could lead Canada when it comes to health care reform? I'm very concerned. Aaron O'Toole talks about providing patients with choice, but we know it's truly just an illusion of choice. Forcing patients to pay for private access really prioritizes rich people's convenience over the average person's health. We've seen time and again in other countries that when you introduce a parallel private option, instead of taking pressure off the public system, you're taking resources away from the public system, the doctors and nurses that care for the majority of patients, which is why when we introduce parallel private options, we see wait times tend to increase for the vast majority of patients that are still cared for in the public system. Okay, Dr. Brian Day, what do you say to that? 
Well, Melanie's just uh, made a statement that's completely untrue. Um, I think um, I, no one is a stronger supporter of a universal public system than me. Uh, it's just that, that it's not delivering on its promises. And um, the, the, so, for instance, the, the, the quote that she just made was absolutely refuted in, in, by government experts at our trial that the evidence was that, yes, there's an increased um, number of patients that obtain private insurance when they're along public wait lists, but causation is not, was ruled out, absolutely ruled out. The, the, you know, it's kind of like saying that we have 10 times, we, we carry more umbrellas in Vancouver than they do in Palm, Palm Desert, but we have, and we have 10 times the amount of rainfall they do, therefore umbrellas cause Cause, uh, cause it to rain. It's a completely illogical argument. But, but I think that we're seeing what we're seeing here from the federal liberals is uh, absolute hypocrisy. The, we know historically that former prime ministers have used private health care, Jean Chrétien, uh, Paul Martin, and, and, and so on, uh, uh, Belinda Stronach. The, these, the, this is a, 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 an issue where it's one thing for me and another for you. And the okay. same applies to the Trudeau family. Okay, Dr. Bichard, what do you say to that? I would say with all due respect to Dr. Day, you lost that trial after four years in an 880-page verdict. Justice Steve determined unequivocally that introducing private options would not reduce wait times for the vast majority of Canadians and would indeed likely increase wait times or at best leave them neutral. To quote the results of the verdict directly, Justice Steve said, a second tier of preferential health care where access is contingent on a person's ability to pay would be the result of introducing more private options. I agree that our health care system could certainly be improved. Nobody is going to argue that we don't have problems with wait times in Canada. But where we differ is the plan of action. So I would say Dr. Day has the right diagnosis, but wrong treatment. We've seen time and again within our system that there's ways to significantly reduce wait times without introducing unproven parallel private systems. In British Columbia, for example, there's the Rapid Access Consultative Expertise or RACE program where family doctors can contact specialists, typically in under two hours, that reduce visits to specialists by 60% and emergency visits by 32%. We can definitely innovate within our current system much more effectively than if we do okay. to parallel private web. Dr. Day? Well, on the trial issue, um, let's say that that decision is under appeal, that the appeal court of British Columbia, in an unusual move, has granted us an injunction against the decision that um, actually Justice Dees uh, found that, that uh, and this is a direct quote, I find that the risks of harm could be potentially alleviated by accessing timely services privately outside the public system. Those are direct quotes. But the reality in BC is that uh, in 2018, the latest figures, 35,000 BC patients were waiting beyond the maximum safe time that governments designated. And only 16 to 38% of patients in need of treatment for serious cancers of the bladder, ovary, prostate, lung, and colon were being treated within the maximum safe time. So the, the system is not working. Um, the, the system needs to be fixed, and we need to look 
outside of Canada because everybody will, will has heard the phrase, we don't want an American system. I've never heard anyone say, we don't want a Norwegian or Dutch system. I've never heard anyone say that. And every other country in the world has, has discarded the concept of a state monopoly in, in, in running the health system. So every other universal system, and they all outrank Canada's, significantly in things like equity and access to care. The Commonwealth Fund came out with this in just August of this year, that we were the worst of inequity of all universal systems that okay. have a private option. Dr. Bouchard. So let's look at some of those other systems. Australia is often cited as an example of a successful private parallel system. Yet we do know that public patients wait twice as long as those in the private system. And even the CEO of one of the private health insurance companies in Australia has said that the current private insurance system is inefficient and unable to continue in its current format. It has to receive a great deal of public subsidies in order to continue to thrive because the premiums for insurance are rising much faster than inflation. And what's also really interesting, too, is that there's more data coming out saying that the median wait times for common surgeries like hip or knee replacement and cataract surgery are actually longer in Australia than in Canada. Okay. So we have to well, pick and choose yes. if we're going to compare to other systems Do- and Doctor, from their advantages, not disadvantages. Dr. Day, real briefly, and then we got yeah, to well, fit a break in here. That's not true. The, the facts, the Commonwealth Fund, which is an independent um, body that looks at, that uh, has come out in August and, and ranks Australia the third best system in the world and uh, and the, the 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 quote the facts just quote, uh, stated by uh, dr Richard are, just, are simply not true we continue our debate on private versus public health care dr brian day dr melanie bechard your calls let's go to a, a, a fit a phone call in here rob and chilliwack hey rob hey hey mike thanks for taking my call sure you know uh i was saying to the guy who screens, screens the call my, my grandfather's brother, my uh, my great uncle Woodrow Lloyd, was the former premier of Saskatchewan. He actually, you can check it out. He actually had the task of implementing Medicare when it first came in. When Tommy Douglas went on to federal politics. Having said that, I love the public system, but I believe in my heart they would even say, in today's wait, let's face it, wait times are horrendous, and I believe they would even say things have to be tweaked here. You know, something's got to be done. Because okay. wait times are way too long. Okay, Doctor. Thank you, Doctor Bichard. What do you say to the argument that if we've got long wait times, if someone pays to get, let's say, an MRI, does that not move the next person in line up in the queue for the private for the public system? Why does it in not work world, that way? Yeah, because we don't have an infinite number of MRIs. So if we have someone who's wealthy paying to get their MRI sooner that still means that there's going to be more people waiting even longer if they can't pay for that faster, more convenient access. In terms of improving Medicare, there's so many ways to do it that are much more effective than the unproven way of creating a parallel private system. Okay, Dr. Day, what do you say to that? Well, I, again, I think we just have to look at the evidence from from around the world. Uh, and as, as I say, I invite Dr. Pshad to read the latest um, Commonwealth Fund study where Canada was ranked last in equity, ranked last in healthcare outcomes of countries that have universal healthcare. There were nine ranked ahead of us. And in my in my book, when when you're not performing well, 
you look at people who are in countries that are doing better than you are. And that's the reality. Access here is poor. And the worst part of it was that, that access related to income disparities, we, we, were, we were ranked near the bottom in, in income related. So in Canada, low income groups and the poor have the worst health access and the worst health outcomes. That's, that's Stats Canada data. So we're, we're not doing well. We need to reform and to keep trying and, and to, to be the only country in the world that operates with a state monopoly. And, and it's a question of who owns your bodily health. If, if, if you're sick and cannot get access to health care and the government okay. won't provide it, they can't at the same time stop you using your own resources to look after yourself. Okay, Jessica on the open line in Vancouver. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Mike. Thanks um, for having these two on this morning. What Dr. Day said uh, just just a minute ago makes absolute sense to me. Our rights to health care should not be restricted by, by a, a health care system. What's so sacred about our system that we can't use common sense and change it to accommodate our needs? Okay, Dr. Dr. Bichard, let me just, I'm sorry to cut you off, but we're just, in the interest of time, Dr. Bichard, what do you say to that? I would say that our right to health should not be based on our income. And I would also caution, too, the Commonwealth Fund that Dr. Day frequently cites is based on survey data, whereas I prefer to choose studies that have hard numerical evidence. I should also mention, too, when we compare ourselves to other countries, it's not just private pay that's different between us. In fact, many of the European uh, countries that Dr. Day is describing actually spend more government funds on their healthcare systems. In Canada, about 70% of healthcare funding comes from the government. In most European countries, it's in the mid-80s or so. So they're injecting more money into their systems. If they have better outcomes, that is very likely the reason why, not because there's some patients who are paying for more convenience in their care. Dr. Day, what do you say to that? Well, again, it's, it's, it's a question of efficiency. And when you have no competition then, and a state-run monopoly, and the com- I don't know any single monopoly that serves the consumer of, of the service well. And of all monopolies, I think a state-run monopoly is the worst. The reason that, the reason that some countries like Britain and New Zealand, where there's, in Britain there's only 10% of the public have private health insurance, but it it has forced the government to introduce care guarantees, 18-week care guarantees. It has forced the public system to perform because people have something they can, as a yardstick, here there's no comparison. And the reason, the reason that governments want to keep the monopoly is if there's nothing to compare us to, uh, so they say they believe, then, then we can't be criticized. Okay, uh, just two minutes left. Steve in the West End. Steve, please make your comment quickly. Go ahead. Sure, you bet. Um, intuitively, this makes absolutely no sense to me that having a privatized, some a hybrid privatized system will draw on the system. If if there is a doctor with a clinic, they will be buying their own MRIs. They'll be buying their own diagnostic equipment, not using provincial assets. As a citizen, I should have the choice. I have, should have the freedom to go and choose where I want to allocate my money and prioritize. But being okay. a draw on the system, no. Okay, Dr. Bichard, we got, we've only got a minute left here, so I'll give you each 30 seconds to wind up. Dr. Bichard, go ahead. 
I would like to say that our healthcare system is the highest expression of Canadians caring for one another. Canadians want to see more funding in their healthcare system. That's why 86% support universal pharmacare. This is something we should pursue that will actually make a difference in Canada's healthcare. Okay, Dr. Day, you got 30 seconds too. I would just ask the, the listeners to answer the question, can a, can a government promise timely healthcare, fail to deliver it, and simultaneously outlaw your ability to care for yourself? It's a question of who, who owns, your, who has the right to care, care for you. Is it the government or is it you?